is Power Quest, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Power Quest is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring three techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, Chris Grabowski, hello, and Tyler Dinner. Hey there. This week's episode, Internet for Everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another Polar Quest. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me is the wonderful, about to move to Brooklyn, Chris Grabowski. Hi! Hi, how's it going? Oh, you sound, I sound much more excited than you do. <laughs> I, mean, I, I miss you guys. I haven't seen you in a few weeks. I've been cooped up inside. And to your left, is that's that piping up over there, is Tyler Dinner. Hi, Tyler. What's up, guys? How's it going? Fantastic, fantastic. Well, we've got quite a show today, and we're going to be moving things along rather quickly because we all have stuff to do, and we're recording on a Monday rather than a Sunday, which means that we have to succumb to the usual workday schedule, which stinks. That's why I like having the show on a Sunday, because you can kind of like, you know, you don't, there's not that rush of stuff to do. You don't have that, oh, man, I have to go on a call later. You know, there's... The, yeah, it's, yeah, you do. Well... Okay, that's true. I uh, okay, you got me. And also this week we have to welcome uh, who who can we forget? But our studio audience. Hello, people. How are you doing? I keep them in a Tupperware container during the week, and I take them out on Sundays just for us. And they're about to go stale because today's a Monday. So, um, let's see. Right on the top of the news for today, I can't breathe. Much like another famous Eric from New York. Oof. Yeah, I don't get it either. Garner. Who? Eric Garner? I don't know. <laughs> Who's the guy that got choked last year by the cops and he couldn't breathe? Remember oh, the I can't breathe, I can't breathe? That's, that's Oh, that's rough. poor taste. Yeah, thanks. Wow. Well, anyway, I really uh, <laughs> I really can't. Um, it's, a, it's a problem. I found out that I am allergic to the pollution in New York City. And you the, and everybody else. I know, but <laughs> and, and how many other people take 8 to 16 mile walks every day? That's your uh, problem. Every, inside, every skinny elderly person. Yeah, well, and they probably also have major lung damage because I did, it took me two, over two years to realize that it was my obsessive walking and breathing in all of the beautiful New York City air that is contributing to my breathing problems, even when I can't feel it happening. So, I spent the last few days inside, and hopefully I sound clearer and less phlegmy and have... I don't know. My timing is better because I can hold more air. I'm not slowly turning into the Bernie Sanders and only able to talk at three words at a time because I can't really breathe that well. <laughs> anyway, uh, I can see that you guys have a lot of empathy for me, so thanks. Um, anyway, uh, next is that pneumonium. My company turned 10 yesterday, and we blew the 10th anniversary by not doing a podcast. Great job, guys. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, uh, I remember coming up with it when I was, oh, a college student, sitting on my couch in my student housing, thinking, this will be the company to change the 21st century. And 10 years later, it hasn't really. Um, but it's fine. It's fine. So it's gonna. It's gonna. I mean, what was Disney ten years after they started? Did they actually create? And maybe actually were more successful. Probably. They they, they hit successful. success like after like two years. Uh, okay, but but Walt Disney was a major anti-Semite, and I'm Jewish, so yeah, it's just like Disney. 
<laughs> no, the thing is, is that Disney. I think what happened was Disney was able to to uh, he had his nine old men, who were the, that was a nickname for the animators for the original Disney features, and he was able to corral them all in his house uh, or slash studio and get them to work on his projects for quote unquote free or virtually free. So he but, made a senior labor sweatshop. Basically. Basically, and this was before, and, the, and and that's how animation started. Well, have you so, seen the documentary? It's it wasn't like there were old people. One, two. No, 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 no. The, the nickname Nine Old Men was a name for the Supreme yeah. Court at the time, which then they jokingly called the animators. There were yeah. nine of them. They were men. There's but, a great documentary on all this, and they did it out of the. Uh, they wanted to do this. They, it wasn't like right. Disney was like you do this. Just like people want to work themselves to death on startups today. Disney didn't have to compete with television or the internet. Maybe the coolest thing you could do in the 19-teens, 1920s, was make a cartoon. But now, all of those people with that skill can just jerk off on Instagram all day. So, it's much harder to corral the same kind of passion out of people, the same kind of effort out of people, when there's so many more things that distract you from, from doing God's work, from creating the next generation of media. And quite frankly, it's really irritating. But... Plus, you know... Everyone had extra spending money then because there was no alcohol. They were making cartoons through the Depression, back, Tyler. Yeah, that, no, back then they had uh, spending money. Uh, the uh, Prohibition didn't hit until, like, the 1926. That was right before Steamboat Mickey. I thought it ended in, like, 29. That was right after. Steamboat Willie. Steamboat, uh, oh, Steamboat Willie, sorry. Steamboat Mickey. My bad. Oh, well, it's 90 years old. Excuse me. Steamboat Mickey. Steamboat Mickey. Sounds like a... Uh, like a, uh, Something, we don't have time for that. Okay, anyway, no, one I thing I wanted to talk about really quickly is the fact that my computer turns on full blast when I put it to sleep. Why? Because you like to party. Because I like to party. Because <laughs> you installed the newer version of Mac OS X on no, an older it's laptop. Actually, because I haven't installed the newer version of Mac OS on a laptop that is four years old. And I, my laptop is fine. It does everything I need it to do, except the trackpad is starting to die, and it uses all of its battery when it sleeps. It's not a hardware issue. My issues are ran out of stickers for for uh, sticker space. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know. What, I don't know what to say. Uh, well, Influx Data just sent me stickers in the mail. What am I supposed to do with them? Not put them on a laptop or a guitar case? Wait, what was that, Tyler? Underside. Oh, I've already used it up. Cool. Old stickers. Well, uh, one thing that I wanted to touch on really quickly, because this is a tech show, is that the Department of Buildings in New York City has recently released a map of all of the scaffolding on sidewalks throughout the entire city. It's interactive, and you can even toggle, like, unsafe for the unsafe scaffolding and mm. the maintenance scaffolding and how long it's been up there and how much of a, and how big so the project is, is. Is there any difference between unsafe and just all scaffolding? There. <laughs> It's what the city calls unsafe. So there's the stuff that is unsafe that they haven't found out about that's still technically safe. Uh, if you just go to search for it, it's called the Sidewalk NYC Sidewalk Sheds Map. And it's interactive, uh, pretty cool. Second thing about New York is, of course, it's the Summer of Hell. That's right. Failing to upgrade our train infrastructure, or rail infrastructure, for 80 years, wow, uh, is quite dramatic, can't you hear that? And uh, it is causing some unforeseen effects, like all of the derailments on New Jersey Transit, all the subway issues, and uh, everything else. And I don't exactly know 
what the solution is, other than, of course, upgrading all of the infrastructure that we refuse to do. What or do you think, it, Christian? Uh, I think if the if the uh, there's two boroughs that if we were to get rid of would make things so much better. One of them doesn't even have subways, but it might as well be underwater. Well, it has a railway. But, does it? The Staten but, Island Railway? Yeah, uh, okay. But then the other one is the Bronx. I, if those two went underwater, all of a sudden subways become so much more efficient. Well, ironically, the Bronx is on the mainland, and it's high, usually higher elevation, so it wouldn't be underwater. So you want to flood the Bronx and purge it like Ozark? Something just, like that. I, I wouldn't use the word purge. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Not oh, I guess, purge. yeah, purge, purge has uh, like bad connotations. It doesn't mean racist stuff anymore. <laughs> Tyler, everything <laughs> is racist. What are you talking about? We're in a post-purge society. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, and actually, my article about the Summer of Hell isn't pulling up, but that's okay because we don't really have time to talk about it, other than the fact that it's just becoming worse and worse. There was a, there was some, uh, like the F train was stuck under the East River for half an hour yesterday. It's falling apart. So I have this question to ask. We, o- we opened up, like, in the last year and a half or two years, we've opened up four new subway stops, and now the entire system is failing. Should we have spent that money on upgrading the rail infrastructure? Christian? I think we should have uh, gotten the rail infrastructure fixed uh, years ago, and none of this money actually goes to fixing it, you realize. If you look at no. their actual spending, it all goes to pensions and uh, higher-ups' uh, salary. In, yes, and in, in fact, the article that I can't pull up, because probably it's behind an ad blocker or something, uh, or a paywall, is uh, it talks about the fact that whenever there has been money allocated for these efforts, it's always been redirected to somewhere else. Like, there was a bunch of money that was reallocated to, uh, to subsidize the lack of business uh, for ski resorts upstate because of the warm winter. I'm not kidding. And uh, it, it subsidizes the losses of New York State's ski resorts because of the global warming, which is ironic because more people have to drive when the trains don't work. So, yeah, that's it. And the music's over, so I think we're done. Yeah. And there was more. That was just the beginning. There was more, but we don't have time to pull it up because it's time for our... Oh, that was depressing. I'm really sorry. My mixer was down. <coughs> it's time for our... GitHub Issues of the Week. First GitHub issue comes to us from my favorite JavaScript framework called React. React DOM.render callback should return the top-level element. The writer says, I don't see the way to obtain the top-level element with the new async React DOM.render. Previously, React DOM.render would return the top-level component, and they have a code snippet. Uh, now there is a third argument with callback that does not pass the rendered component into the callback. Interesting. So, what do we do? Well, it's certainly a bug, and it's one that would involve changing the, uh, the React uh, DOM source code. So it actually is a bug in React DOM, and they should fix it. Well, unless they have some uh, decent argument as why it shouldn't uh, uh, return that, uh, the outermost component. I'm sure that's in the next stage of their documentation, which they have yet to upload an update for the new React DOM. So it looks like uh, there's no, there aren't even any responses for this one. So it looks like it's an actual real bug. We'll have to check back on that next week. Well, that was easy. All right, let's move to the next one. Our next GitHub issue of the week. 
The X-forwarded host HTTP header is always trusted and used in URL 4. This comes, for, from, ah, this comes to us from Rails. Uh, background. The writer says, This has been reported twice on the Rails Hacker One program, and the recommendation from Jeremy was to an open GitHub issue, and he encloses two more. Uh, steps to reproduce. We're going to simulate a host header attack on a sample application. Number one, visit, visit the website for your attack app. And this is forwarded hostemo.herokuapp.com. It may need some time to boot up. Two, open the network tools in your browser, I used Chrome, and tick the option to preserve requests. Three, click the redirect, redirect back to homepage link. You're now redirected back to the homepage. Four, click the corresponding request for slash foo as a curl command from the browser's network tools. Uh, simulate a host header attack, paste the curl command into a terminal, and add flag capital H quotes x forwarded host colon evil dot com. And then they enclose the, requ- the whole request. Expected result, user is redirected to the homepage. You are being redirected. But the observed result is that it's actually going to hero, uh, evil.com. What is going on? It's just, is that just simply it's forwarding the... It's, it's not uh, so it's using the headers the Rails, properly? It's an issue in the Rails header validation that can be used for a redirect attack to hijack your website. Because it's just using the host in X forwarded for, or X forwarded host. Right, which is a uh, common practice, actually. But that makes in, sense. Particularly in Rails, uh, where you're uh, forwarding to a different page, and uh, it says go to this place, but uh, because it's always trusted, you can just give it wherever you want it to go to. And so it could be on one site, and then you just happen to be able to uh, intercept a uh, request. And all of a sudden, send it to uh, Pornhub.com or something. Something like that, or your favorite porn site. Um, isn't X forwarded host something that proxy servers typically use? Uh, yes, but that's for different reasons. Does, right. I didn't real. I guess I didn't think that. But I, I feel like when proxy servers use it, X forwarded host is the original host name of the, uh, of the of the request that they're forwarding, not the target host name. Right. Oh, and that's the one you'd want to access, which is exactly why this issue exists. Yep. Very good. And let's move on to our next. Is there a solution? Sorry, I didn't even look because <laughs> we're out of time. Uh, mitigation. Uh, say, oh, it's, there's a Rails config that you can set. Config.actioncontroller.defaultURL options. And they enclose default URL option, options. Or config.actioncontroller.assethost equals yoursite.com. To avoid this is to avoid host injection, but when I tested it, it had no effect. So, looks like it's still open, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Then let's move on to our next GitHub issue of the week. And I think we'll keep it at three because we're out of time. This one comes to us from Moment. Wrong quote. Time from now for RFC twenty eight twenty two date. Moment.js version one point one eight. Proper RFC 2822 date-time format shows the wrong value for moment.fromnow. And then they enclose steps to reproduce. And there's no, uh, there's no solution. Okay. Yeah, slow day on GitHub for maintainers. I guess. Wow. 15 hours, nobody, the guys from moment aren't, uh... Has something supplanted moment? Is that why? Do that people still be. use this? I don't know. That's I actually question. use it on a really old website. 
and it complains that it's something is no longer supported, but it's fine. It's really old. Uh, I don't know if people still use it. So are you I guess, sure we don't have time for the next one because it's a lot more interesting than. But I don't know if we're going to have time for the other stuff at the second half of the show. All right. So, I mean, if you really want to do it, we might as well. Fine. We'll have our last GitHub issue of the week. Our last GitHub issue of the week comes to us from Include OS. TCP connection write causes read callback to not be called. The writer says... I've butchered the TCP example to make a simple, te- a simple test echo server. The unikernel is then run on QEMU uh, x86-64 on a Raspberry Pi uh, using a tap device for networking. And I connect, to it, I connect to it using Netcat from the Pi. And it's good because this one filters into our Internet of Things stuff for later. After a few small messages from Netcat, the unikernel simply freezes. Doesn't produce any more output, doesn't produce any error messages or CPU dumps, and it doesn't receive the last message and doesn't rep- uh, last message sent and doesn't reply. The number of messages before freezing and the length of messages varies surprisingly. On one test, I could send A, B, C, and D, but it froze on E. While in a test a minute later, I could send from A to H before it froze on I. Removing the write call from the on-read callback fixes this, quote unquote. But I assume writing from the read callback is supposed to be doable. Oh, actually, is it? I would suggest that this is a bug, only I've made minor modifications to the official TCP example. And then he has some code. Anything to comment about the code that he posted? So I think one thing to give a little background here is ImcludeOS is a unikernel, which is often for IoT stuff. But... uh, so what a uh, unikernel is, is a actual library that functions as your kernel, at least in the ImcludeOS model. Ah. Are there other unikernels that are not? Uh, yeah, the Mirage OS, which is a, a, a little more like a traditional kernel, but you kind of just pick and choose what parts of it you want. So you can be like, I need a rootfs, I need a, uh, uh, a full net stack, I need just the TCP side, I need just the UDP side. And I need a scheduler. Or you can be like, I don't need a scheduler, I'm just running one process, and I just need a net stack. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, uh, should you be able to write to a buffer during a read callback, though? So, that's probably where this guy's getting a little uh, mixed up, if I had to guess. The fact that uh, once the read is done, which would be the callback, you should be able to write. But, uh, I... It, could be that um, uh, it's getting a little uh, out of order, but this look, does look correct. If we read on, it seems uh, th- th- that there is a um, an issue where uh, he's just not catching an error, and it's actually a variable going out of scope and not being allocated to the heap. Hmm. Although I'm not sure include OS has the traditional stack and heap, so it might be something different. He says, "Looks, uh, you you capture the counter variable by reference. It will go out of scope when service start has been executed." And reads all of your counter inside the timer func will be UB. Uh, under, I don't know what UB is. Unbound. Unbound, thank you. It probably resets to zero because it's located on the stack, which any other callbacks use and clears. And he goes, oh, you're right, of course. I forgot the start method returns the callbacks, handle, uh, the callbacks handled by everything else. The timer works as if a shared pointer is used. I'll delete that post as it doesn't have, add any new information to what what already exists, and 
that's where it stands. So it's a work in progress uh, of debugging, but it seems that it's actually a bit more of a C++ issue than uh, an Include OS issue. Well, that was some great GitHub issues, but Tyler, I'm really sorry. I haven't figured out the right theme music for you to use, and you and Christian oscillating back and forth has meant that I could kind of use the old one for too long. That's fine. Is it fine? As long as you play something snazzy. I mean, I could, you know, I could could always do the, uh... It's time for our plus ones of the week. Take it away, Tyler. Oh, sorry. Our pull request plus ones are when we sell out our what send us or not sell out our well wishes and acknowledgments of awesomeness to people and other organizations. Take it away, Tyler. All right. Just to clarify, we do not sell out our plus ones. These are totally from us, totally free and at will. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll get paid for our plus ones, but uh, we'll have a sponsored uh, segment. Exactly. So you'll make, exactly. You'll know that it's sponsored. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Send out, not sell out, like the real big fish song. So <laughs> who, who gets the plus one, one of your plus ones for this week? Uh, number one goes to Lyft. Lyft. Yeah, because um, Lyft entered the uh, self-driving car space this week. They uh, they laid down their foundation plan for it. That's pretty good. Wow. Uh, yeah, the good news is, um, you know, more people in the self-driving car market is just going to boost uh, competition and make it better and safer for everyone. We all need that and cheaper. And uh, it's also nice to hear of another uh, established uh, car company that is in the game. Since we know that we can't rely on Uber all the time anymore. Yeah, they are. Uber seems like they're a sinking ship, unfortunately, because they have the first name brand recognition on this side of the country. Most people just default to Uber, though I found out when I was out west, people default to Lyft. Yep, and now everyone's jumping off Uber here. It's basically the Titanic. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's what happens (laughs) when toxic masculinity runs your startup. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that can have some real consequences. Don't be a word we can't say on this show. Um, so what, what's going to happen with a lift, a self-driving lift? Does that mean that I'm going to order a lift and it just pulls up and no one's going to be inside? Yeah, here's what I'm hoping is that that gets to New York for when the L train shuts down in a year. Oh, that'll <laughs> that be way nice. I don't have to move. Yeah, but then you'll have to take the, the surface streets like everybody else. That's why the trains exist. But I'll take a lift. Well, no, the train's going to go down where I live, so... <laughs> Yeah, I know. If, I also live on the L train. But you're going to be stuck. But all of those people are going to be crammed into buses on the road. Look at the M train. That's what they're doing now. They already messed up the M train. They're just tons of shuttle buses. They're running right down your street right now. Tons of shuttle buses going from uh, somewhere to Middle Village. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Myrtle Avenue. Yeah. I don't know. Myrtle I'm and Broadway. Not start biking. Sorry. I guess I'm certainly not going to start biking. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be a nice challenge to us Bushwick folk, but at least we'll get to laugh at the people in Williamsburg. No, we'll be, have the same fate as they do. <laughs> no, it'll be the great Bushwick exodus for one year. There you go. One thing I wanted to ta- uh, touch on with uh, Lyft and Uber and, and all these self-driving cars and electric vehicles and stuff is that you may have heard this recently. Tesla and uh, their wonderful founder, Elon Musk, uh, their cars are not as clean or as green as you thought they were. Yes, you can create. You can have a car that has a quarter of the emissions per mile that a standard car does, but in the production of that vehicle, actually has many more pollutants and environmental hazards and unsustainable development practices. 
Like, did you know that most electric cars require rare metals that can only be found in mines that are in specific spots in the world? And I don't mean, I mean, that's like, that's like gold, but you know what I mean? Like, they're rare metals. And it's yeah. a very hazardous working environment to excavate those rare metals. So we're, in a, we're kind of digging our own grave. I mean, we, I, I read an article a few years ago about that affecting the production of the iPhone. How it, if everyone had an iPhone or a smartphone, we'd, we'd be out of these rare earths. And that's exactly what we need for these cars. The batteries, the battery production pollutes. The batteries pollute. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know what the solution is, but it's not a panacea, which I think that's what they're marketing it as. And people, you know, feel better sure. about themselves when they drive an electric car with all that smug. I think the silver lining there, though, is that they are always evolving the, uh, the, the development process. Uh, it's not going to be like the regular automobile where the car companies staunchly pay off, uh, you know, the government to, to suppress all the other types of cars that come up. That's They're not true. Going to kill the electric car three times. They're going to find a better way to make the motor that doesn't require rare earth metals, and they're going to make that happen. That's true. They won't be like GM and just say, "Well, you know, how many people are going to die? How much is that going yeah. to cost us?" Eh, Startups whatever. don't pay to get competition done as much as they used to. They make things better. They invest in themselves. Most of the time, well, yes. Most of the time, but hopefully the world will be a much better place because of that practice. Yes, and your second. Let's move on. Plus one of the week goes to. Uh, y Combinator. Why is that? Eh. Well, why? Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, plus one, we think, to Y Combinator for supposedly seeking out a massive $1 billion round of funding. Uh, wow. You can insert the Dr. Evil laugh here. I thought Y Combinator was an incubator by itself. Why do they need funding? Uh, to incubate. <laughs> Let's put some of your music back on. It's an expensive game if you're going to, you know, bring people into uh, companies and then throw money at them to make new companies with. So you're basically investing all the time. That's true, but I thought the idea of Y Combinator was that it was always well-funded because it was just made up of these billionaire venture capitalists. No, Y Combinator does a lot, too. Um, and they and they do their part to take shares in the company as well. Not, you know, so they get a piece of all the stuff that walks through the door and they throw money at them as well. Interest, Interesting. Uh, it yeah. looks like uh, Y Combinator no longer plans to separate out its growth stage investments in a separate fund. This new vehicle will reportedly be used to invest in startups of all sizes and stages. Further, when Y Combinator invests in a later stage company, the company no longer needs to be a YC alum, as was previously the case. Uh, and so, uh, the investment committee will be slightly smaller than it has been. Interesting. So hopefully it's a good thing, but, you know, if we're centralizing power and now Y Combinator is starting to get involved with later stage startups, then that might not be such a good thing. They may be drifting away from their mom-and-pop store technology backings and maybe, you know, who knows, Y Combinator is going to be a Google investor soon, and then that's not helpful. No, well, Google already has a venture, uh, a venture arm. In fact, Kevin Rose, I think the guy that made Dig, uh, you remember that website... Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, he's. I believe he's the head of Google Ventures, and he just goes around the world listening to people's ideas. Huh. Maybe I'll give you some of my internet money. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you made a popular website from 2004 to 2007, you may have money. I don't know. I don't know how well they paid. Um, <laughs> I think he sold out pretty well. Uh, and he did sell out, not send out. So That's why he left to Reddit, I think, is because they, they sold out. Well, it's not just that they sold out. It's just, I think the... The interface was kind of clunky, and it just lost its panache. 
But yeah, Reddit yeah. is definitely the new Dig. Dig was the new Boing Boing. <laughs> uh, Boing Boing was the new Bash.org. Facebook's just the new Friendster. Facebook's just the new Friendster. No, it's the new MySpace, which was the new Friendster. Which was the new Live Journal. So, which it, was the new AIM. Which was the new AIM, right. And I remember when AIM came out and my mom wouldn't let me go in chat rooms. When, oh, yeah. Yeah. Those were dangerous. You're too young for that. Don't go in the chat. You, Mom, you don't even know what a chat room is. No, don't go in there. Okay. <laughs> when I can breathe better, I can do a better impression of my mother. <laughs> <laughs> the higher register, yes. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, one last thumbs up, Tyler, yeah? You have three yeah, thumbs? Yeah, one last thumbs up to uh, Adult Swim and the show creators because Rick and Morty is finally coming back. Uh, so Dan Harmon. People. Adult Swim and Dan Harmon. Dan Harmon, yeah. And, Justin uh, Roiland. Justin Roiland. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Sunday night, 11.30. If you haven't seen the show and you enjoy listening to the one that you're listening to right now, then you need to stop everything that you're doing after this episode oh, and okay. go watch everything of Rick and Morty. <laughs> I thought you meant like right now. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, sport, uh, you know, no, don't I, spoil it. Don't spoil that's it. All, that's all. That's I all. I support them. Oh, yeah. Good. Very good. And that's plus been one. your Plus Ones of the Week. I've actually, I have a confession to make. I actually do like Rick and Morton now. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I, uh... Oh, is that your Rick? No. Excellent. That was just me <laughs> imitating you. Uh, no. It's, uh, no, I'm serious because, um, I have this issue with shows, and the same thing happened with Tim and Eric, and the same thing happened with the, uh, the, like, the, the second Tim and Eric, which was Kroll Show, and there are a few of these shows that, like... You really hate when you watch them the first time, and then it slowly albums too. It slowly grows on you, and then you and it clicks, and then you realize, oh wait, actually, I love this. And then you get obsessed, and you get over it. And <laughs> I'm right on the precipice of being obsessed because I finally transitioned from oh this show sucks to wow it's actually not bad, especially for Adult Swim. I mean, come oh, on. Oh, it's unbelievable that it, it's an adult swim show. I can't, it's yeah, so it's, it's honestly close, it's not, but it's close to the, the type of quality that Fox gets from its animated shows. I, it's actually intentionally lower quality, I think. Interesting. Well, I mean, and that's from the network that started with recycled Space Ghost animation because of budgetary concerns. So, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic that they've created a whole show that's, like, actually animated properly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good, very good. Very good. Well, <clears throat> uh, let's continue our continuing cafeve of Wanna Cry. Um, I don't have any music for that. Um, that wasn't it. I could always do uh, Wanna Cry. Or was I using that for Summer of Hell? Oh, well, I should have planned this out. It's your breaking news segment. There we go. Have some Jaws wanna cry. When you think ransomware hasn't gone far enough, it now leaks into everyone's computer around the world. No. Um, really quickly, there's an update on uh, WannaCry, or continuing Kabebe. Uh, it's changed attitudes to cybersecurity surveys show. Now, this survey, like many other surveys, has a very small sample size. Um... The initial wave of WannaCry attacks has affected more than 200,000 computers in 150 countries, with the NHS in England being the most affected, causing a disruption at hospitals and doctors' surgeries. Of the 600 business decision markers and 1,200 employees, 1,200 employees polled across the U.S., Germany, U.K., Austria, or Australia, 1,200 people 
So it infected 200,000 computers and 150 companies, and they only got 1,200 people to respond to the study. And then it, of people. Yes, so it's not, well, it's not, it's barely thousands of people. It's a thousand, basically. Using Common Core math, it's still like 500. Um, fractions of percents. Yeah. And the rest of the, and the rest of the article talks about percentages, uh, percentages to kind of obfuscate or embiggen the actual sample size and make it more of an issue than it is. Because 1,200 people, that's, I mean, come on, there's 200,000 computers. That's 1%. That's assuming one person per computer. It might be less. It might be multiple. Yeah. Anyway. Um... Let's see. Uh, 77 of the 1,200 employees and 600 decision makers, okay, so it's 1,800 people, excuse me, uh, polled by the security firm ClearSwift. Of those people, 77% said they had knowledge of the attacks. In the UK, the awareness level was above average, with 88% of UK respondents saying they had knowledge of WannaCry. Uh, in the wake of the attacks, 58% of firms are expecting another attack in the next few months. I'm going to guess probably like what happens when uh, congressmen say that there's going to be another 9-11 soon. Yeah, it might not happen. Um, the survey revealed that as a direct response to WannaCry, 29% of UK businesses will now add cybersecurity to the boardroom agenda. And 29% of firms worldwide have pledged to imp- implement stronger cybersecurity measures. With 80% of UK employees increasingly worried about how companies hold their data and the same, protect, uh, the same proportion across all employees polled sharing these concerns, it is no surprise that 38% of the employees who said they were aware are now reading more about cybersecurity. Still, less than half. In addition, 33%, and this is of the 1,800 people, said that they have changed their passwords. 24% said they have formally enrolled in online security courses. 26%, 26% said that they are taking steps to ensure their companies raise their game in cybersecurity, whatever that means. 29% are now recognizing cybersecurity has a place on the boardroom table. Oh, really? Yes. The U.S., 49%, proved most likely to action change, followed by Australia, 43%, and Germany, 37 And then the U.K. at 35%, even though they were hit the worst. However, the fact that more than half, 55% of the 1,800 people, excuse me, of those eight aged 18 to 24, that's not us anymore, sorry guys, um, were aware of WannaCry, have taken initiative to, uh, have taken the initiative to read more, I already mentioned that, 29% enrolling, in, it's the same article, it actually restated everything twice. Oh, that's great. Yeah, they didn't proofread this. Um, <laughs> 100% of this article was not proofread. Exactly. Um... That's about it. So the people are starting to wake up to the fact that, oh man, I have to enter a password when I use my computer. Yes. Oh, I have to enter a password when I get back from screensaver. Yes. You have to do it to secure your stuff, and it'll make it harder for WannaCry. Also, uh, don't use a simple password like John Podesta. Do you put a lock on your front door? You wouldn't download a house. <laughs> Yeah, I would. Yeah, I actually said I didn't come up with that. I saw that as a meme somewhere. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and I also yeah the audience. I don't know what they're doing. What are you? What's what's wrong, guys? Are you like? Uh... There we go. Sorry. Another overreaction from our audience because. I suck at prompting them. Um, no, it's because you feed them alcohol before the show. It's a two-drink minimum just to make them a rowdy crowd, you know? 
I mean, it's the same with comedy shows. You think about it. We just have to. They can't get laughs. We have to pop them down. Uh, take it easy. Take it easy. Take it There's easy. There's a lot guys. of shows on TV where that audience must be. <laughs> Exactly, and you know, there's no uh, two drink minimum for sitcoms, even though that might help. Um, yeah, <laughs> so there, all, there's this. Saturday Night Live could have used that a few years ago. <laughs> Sorry, Saturday Night Live could have used that a few years ago. Yeah, or you know, still. Um, they had better. There is a list of the top fifty products by total number of distinct vulnerabilities. The number one, <laughs> I can't believe this. I'm sorry, Christian, is the Linux kernel. With 1,914 distinct vulnerabilities. Number two, oh, wow. what do you think is number two? If number one is a Linux kernel, what do you think is right under that? Microsoft something? Mac OS X, because it is also a Unix kernel. Unix kernel. But it's distinct, so it's not the same issues that the Linux kernel has. It has its own issues, 1,867 of them. Under that is Fire, or is Chrome. 1,453 issues. Under that is Firefox. 1,437. Under that is iOS. And a number under... Or sorry, just missing the top 10 is uh, Windows 7. It's actually number 14. Windows Vista is number 13. And the only one to make the number uh, the top 10 is Windows Server 2008. That's not even Windows Server 2008 R2, Windows Server... 2013 Windows Server 2013 R2. It's an old version, old, old version of Windows Server with only 946 distinct vulnerabilities. I think Patch Tuesday has a phenomenal effect because what world is this? Linux kernel has the most distinct vulnerabilities. Mac OS is right under it. And Windows, Windows 7 is number 14. I don't even know. Windows 8 is number 27. Windows 10 is number 44. Mac it's OS is number two. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a catch or an asterisk there, you know, maybe it's like... No? Well, no, it's like maybe they have more issues, but less issues that just let you walk in the back door as easily as possible. Like, most of the big exploits that happen on an international basis are, you know, older versions of Windows based. DOS, DOS exec code overflow memory corruption. DOS exec code overflow memory corruption. Bypass plus info. Bypla- bypass, bypass plus info. Exec code. DOS overflow memory corruption. It's a lot of these. Mac OS is uh, not that stable. I guess, you know, they've been saying for the longest time that the quote-unquote security behind Mac OS comes not from the solidity of the environment, but from the fact that nobody really used Macintoshes 15 years ago when the set was said. Uh, now that uh, many people have iPhones, which is why iOS is number five, uh, the, the threat, uh, the, the attack vectors are increasing and the number of threats are increasing because... It's gaining market share. Microsoft, in all of its foibles and mistakes, had to learn this the hard way. Because everyone laughed at them for so long. And now, they finally have their stuff together. Because Windows 10, like I said, was number 40-something. Number 44. Yeah, that's great. Number 45 is Windows RT 8.1. I can't believe it. This is a... This is, sorry? I guess the question is, is where does it affect you? And sometimes... Sometimes your weaknesses are in vulnerable areas. Like, iOS is number five, but the FBI couldn't crack an iPhone. So, you know, it's the cert- it's, it's that's where a good it counts. Point. You know? It's right. the habit where it counts. That's a, that's a good point. Let's see what the iPhone OS has. Uh, oh, it's all time, too. 
This year only had 261 vulnerabilities. Only. Uh, uh, it doesn't say which ones they are like it did with the other ones. Let's see, 2017. Well, so then maybe that's why if it's all time... It's... No, here we go, here we go. DOS, ex- is at DOS, exec code overflow memory corruption, DOS, XSS. Uh, it's the same as, honestly, many of the... I mean, they're distinct, but they're DOS, exec code overflow memory corruption. Hmm. Apple iOS before 10.3.3 is affected. I'm just saying I'm taking this list with a grain of salt. Well... I don't know. I would I would say this is really a sign of the times. And if I were at Apple, I would not be happy that Mac OS is literally 42 points above Windows 10. But here's the thing. And this is why. I just figured it out. It's because they chart Mac OS back to 1999 when it came out. There you go. Windows 10 came out a last year. version from Windows and everything else. Sorry, it came out in 2015. So it has a total of 406, but Mac OS, uh, I think it probably has 400 this year. 188. Okay, it still beats Windows if you combine 2015, 16, and 17. That sucks. But well, it's not yeah, 1800, I, it's like... like... iOS has been out for so long. It's, you know, it's a decade of issues. Right. Get changed and come and go and interchange every, issue, every version. Mac OS has been around this whole century. So those are all combined. But like I said, it still does beat Windows by a significant margin because it's still 800 in the last three years instead of 400. So, yeah. Anyway, after WannaCry, of course, we always continue our continuing convive of Theresa May murdering the Internet. And this year, it's more stuff, I have to say. This year, sorry. (laughs) This week. uh, There's more more stuff. I am... uh, This is what happens, Tyler, when we do a show on Monday. Because I just okay, like, Garfield. Uh, yeah, I just it's I don't have the rhythm, I don't have the timing, and I know I have stuff to do after this, and just uh, encryption services like WhatsApp frustrate police investigations on a daily basis. Britain's most senior officer last night revealed. Met police officer Miss Chrisida Dick, Chrisida Dick. I'm not kidding. Said that there. Chrisida Dick. <laughs> Commissioner Dick. Said there are large, not kidding, said there are large numbers of, quote, volatile people in the UK who are being radicalized with an S through the internet. And she revealed that six terror plots have been foiled in the past four months and that the threat has shifted in tempo this year. Well, if she was able to, threat, to stifle six terror threats in the last four months with end to end encryption, then I have no qualms for her in the future. Yep. Increasingly, encryption frustrates our investigations every day. This is Miss Dick talking. Uh, we, <laughs> I'm too immature for that. Well, quote, We have had unprecedented numbers of UK citizens traveling to those conflicts in largely ungoverned spaces, the internet. Progress on the ground in Syria and Iraq does not necessarily translate to a reduction in threat here. And we have large numbers of apparently volatile individuals in the UK, some of whom become determined to die. Who, have may been, who, have, who may have been inspired largely through the web and decided on methodology learned from there too. Because we planned it there. Theresa May earlier this year, there she is, announced a new crackdown with French President Macron, Macron to stop the internet before being used as a safe space for terrorists and criminals. Speaking at the Mansion House in the city of London last night, Ms. Dick gave a, gave a stark assessment of the terror threat facing Britain. And she warned that the modern threat, now more than ever, includes the encouraging of others to commit atrocious acts, like punch a Nazi. 
She continued, she didn't say that, but that's what it is. She, uh, she continued, that virus can infect communities and it's spreading faster and more easily due to the internet. We need to get explicit content like pornography taken down as quickly because that will obviously solve the problem. Commissioner, the commissioner, Dick, predicted that the number of existing and former subjects of interest for police in MI5 will rise from the current total of 23,000. Like I said, very similarly to when Congress asks people, <clears throat> will there be another 9-11 in six months? Oh, a- absolutely, absolutely there will be. I just need my budget increased because they're terrorists and they're going to they're gonna bomb us and I need more money. So... Britain has been hit by four attacks this year, with dozen killed, dozens killed in atrocities in Manchester, Westminster, and Lond- London Bridge in Finsbury Park. Police and MI5 are running more than 500 investigations into 3,000 individuals assessed as posing the greatest threat. There are a further 20,000 former subjects of interest whose risk remains subject to review. Quote, I anticipate these numbers will grow. Of course you do. They will use external threats to remove personal liberty, and those who sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. That's a Ben Frank quote? I didn't come up with that. It's too smart for me. But um, I'm serious when, you know, there is a real effort to crack down on encryption, and it's going to be a real effing problem. Just like something that I will refuse to talk about on this podcast because it's not political outside of this. Um, on the heels of that, because of Brexit and because of the European Union's penchant for regulations, there might actually be a conflict between, the, uh, between what England wants to do, the UK want to do uh, with encryption, and what the EU will, want, uh, will allow them to do over, their, over other member countries' devices after they've exited. The EU draft proposals read, and they're, oh, sorry, European members of Parliament for the European Parliament Civil Liberties, it's redundant, uh, Civil Liberties, Justice, and Home Affairs Committee have tabled laws banning countries from seeking to break encrypted messages. It would also force tech companies which don't like using strong encryption for communications to do so. The draft proposals read, quote, when, the, when encryption of electronic communications data is used, decryption, reverse engineering, or monitoring of such communications shall be prohibited. Member states shall not impose any obligations on electronic communication service providers that would result in the weakening of security and encryption of their networks and services. I wish someone said that over here. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's a way to sue Google for hundreds of millions of dollars. No. Um, the, I mean, it's, it is really nice that they have that, and that does very much conflict with our security state and, of course, the country we inherited it from, which was England. And then we rebuilt it and sold it back to them. Uh, we, I, I mean, it's a real, we are a police state. England is, a, the UK are a police state. And we want to be able to spy on everybody. And the EU actually are, are putting together, now it's a draft. Much like when the healthcare bills are in draft, it says all the good stuff. And then by the time it actually passes, they take it out. They don't admit. So who knows what's going to happen to this in the future. But this is very recent news, as in from three days ago. Um, yeah. Sweet. So, that's not our, uh, that's not exactly our news story for the week. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to talk about one thing. 
that um, a lot of these, this is on encryption, I thought we were done, but we're not. Sorry. Uh, a lot of this stuff on encryption, a lot of the arguments on encryption that the government pose say, well, you know, you can have a secret backdoor just for us. No one will know. No one will find out. It'll be secret, secret, secret. Just like cool, all the guys. stuff it's that so the government cool. keeps secret, which is nothing. It's totes cool. It's going to be okay. Nothing ever gets hacked or leaked or WikiLeaked or nothing. Nothing ever. No. No, no information ever escapes the government unless it's perfectly authorized. Right. We're just going to sneak something in your back door. It's going to be okay. And exactly. And because... Says, that means two things. Butt, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> you say no. Exactly. Now, <laughs> what's funny is that a lot of these politicians always look for real-world or analog examples uh, to apply to their encryption argument, even though there is no real analog metaphor for this, because nothing really has existed uh, in the in the in the real in the physical world like encryption. There are things that are like, if I, put a, if I put money in a safe and I tied a ribbon around the safe and you said, hey, I'll open the safe, I'd have to, right? That's not encryption. That's obfuscation. That is not encryption. What happens is, with encryption, encryption is math, as we, encryption will tell you, always say. Encryption is basic math. You can't outlaw mathematics, despite uh, uh, Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia we read last week, says that the laws of Australia trump the laws of mathematics. Whatever. Oh. What I was getting at is that if you want a real-world example of a government using a backdoor improperly and having it, or managing the security of it improperly and having it leak out into the public, look no further to the most hated organization in the federal government, the Transportation Security Administration. And I had a recent uh, two-finger interview with them um, as I was traveling to Florida. Anyone with a 3D printer can now unlock every single TSA-approved padlock thanks to a security lapse by the American government agency. The master locks for these keys are kept under close guard, but a photograph of seven of them accompanied in a Washington Post article about the TSA published in November 2014. It took almost a year for anyone to notice, but once they did, they took the pictures and they moved to take advantage of the breach. The Washington Post took down the picture in August, but by then it was too late. While copying a key from a photograph sounds tricky, or remains tricky, one security researcher going by XYL2K has lowered the barrier to entry considerably. They posted the necessary files to 3D print all seven master keys on GitHub. And others who have printed them confirm that they work. Oh my god. Yeah. XYL2K used the breach to preach against the, the, against the use of master keys in general, citing a research paper by, the, by AT&T's Mike Blaze. He probably smokes. Virtually all master keyed mechanical lock systems are at least theoretically vulnerable. Unfortunately, at this time, there is no simple or completely effective countermeasure that prevents the exploitation of this vulnerability short of replacing a master keyed system with a non-mastered one. That's it. So instead of a, a key to pick all your luggage, it's going to be a key to pick through all your data. And the government's going to say, it's safe. No, look at us. We're the government. We have all these cards. It's safe. It's not. Because they couldn't even let the, they couldn't even keep these plastic keys. They're plastic. They couldn't even keep these under wraps. 
with all of the billions of the billions and billions of dollars that we, the TSA spends and that we and that we spend on security, no one could have said, "Hey, we shouldn't take pictures of these master keys because we live in a world where they could be printed out." Nobody, yeah. no. I mean, I mean. Ugh. No, you're right. But, yeah. That's why we can't trust the government with this kind of stuff because the, the government's a, like uh, like the wily e. coyote. The general public's like roadrunner. Not to mention that I don't know if you can really be fired for not doing your job in the government. There's no profit motive. There's nothing to motivate you other than terrorism, which is the only thing that we've been doing, which has actually done a fantastic job, if you think about it, of motivating America the last 60 years. We went to the moon because of terrorism. We made the internet because of terrorism. Personal computers. Everything was because of the Cold War slash Russia. And uh, now we're going to rifle through all your data because of Russia slash Al-Qaeda. Yeah. So, <laughs> on the heels of that, I have a funny story for you, though it is still kind of bittersweet at best. Microsoft is discontinuing paint. Rude. I know. Aww. Oh, I thought, I thought you'd be more aggressive than that. Sorry, audience. But yeah, Microsoft, uh, I, I, it's time. Paint has existed since the first version of Windows, and... Uh, how many versions? 13? You get from 1 to 10. It's like 13 versions. Later, it's going to be gone. It was overhauled in Windows 7. That wasn't enough. Let's hear it from our news department. Ah! No money on presents! News to you! Redman Washington. Over the last couple of years, we've seen various technology companies make big strides towards a new era of personal computing. Microsoft continues this journey by placing one of their hallmark programs in the dustbin of history. Microsoft Paint, both reveled and reviled by artists and developers alike, has been a cornerstone to the Windows user experience ever since they ripped off Mac Paint from Apple. MS Paint will be officially deprecated in the forthcoming Ball Creators update and will probably be removed, much like Solitaire, thereafter. While removing a paint program from a creator's update sounds ridiculous, it comes as no surprise that the company to make such a move is Microsoft. But don't fret. Microsoft isn't leaving you stranded. They've replaced MS Paint with a new program called Paint 3D, which allows you to create 3D models with vectors rather than being constrained to the 2D bitmap hell we've come to know and love. You'll even be able to 3D print your creations, which include characters of the popular game known as Minecraft. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still times, and the truth marches on. That's why this has been News to You. Brought to you by Pneumonia. Sweet. Perfect timing. Yeah. Yeah. MS Paint, it's over. Damn. It's over. I guess I'll just have to play Mario Paint. <laughs> I love Mario Paint. I still have the mouse, actually, from Mario Paint. Or Mario Those Paint. stupid flies. <clears throat> yes! But they had this, uh... The music oh. for that Flyswatter game. The first two levels of it. Like, the first, the first yeah. was, like, a swing kind of... And it was all in this little 16-bit dinky machine. <sighs> if only I could have just appreciated and enjoyed the paint game. But no, I had to get distracted by the fly game. Then you just get pissed <laughs> off by the fly game. <laughs> you don't want to Alright. Um 
Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, Mario Paint. Yeah, that's right. You know what? MS Paint is deprecated. Pull out your Super Nintendo. Excuse me, and get Mario Paint. Um, interestingly, Paint 3D looks pretty cool. Sounds cool. Yes, and it doesn't. It's not bitmapped, and I think even Paint for Windows 7 added layers, which is beautiful. Um, but layers are everything. But I mean, MS Paint is a is a sign of the times. I mean, I. All of the crappy art that people created in MS Paint. I know someone that made business cards with MS Paint. I mean, it's a... You've got nothing to do on a low-end computer. Paint stuff. Do they really not have solitaire anymore? No, they actually moved that with Windows 8 to Xbox Live, even though it's a solitaire game. What about Space Pinball? That doesn't exist anymore, but it might also be on Xbox Live. But why do you need Xbox Live to play effing solitaire? You know what? what? Two years ago, I was trying to do a, a, a YouTube just video for a code and record my screen on it as a video, and that software was in Xbox Live. I could not believe it. What? The, to record your game? To record your screen on Windows was Xbox Live. I had to jump through 20 loops. I had to research for hours, and I gave up. On Mac, it's built in. You just click record. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. messed up. But they were in transition, so hopefully... Yeah, no, I mean, this is another step in the right direction, rather than saying, use a program that's 25, 35 years old. Yeah, but if I have to sign up for a freaking Xbox Live account to do some program stuff on my computer, I'm going to be pissed off, so Microsoft, well, watch out. you're probably going to have to have some kind of Microsoft account. I mean, think about this, to use the App Store Microsoft, to download a free app, you have Microsoft to sign up with account. Apple. I, I log in with my Outlook account, so if you're going to tell me that I have to go make a Microsoft, an Xbox Live account now just to use a recording device on my computer, like, that's not okay. Well, I mean, it'll probably, you could probably, why don't you just use this, the same your Outlook account as your Xbox it Live account. Money. It was an Xbox Live. I don't know. There wasn't a button. I wow. Really it. Okay. There was an easy way. I was going to be pissed off. Okay. Well, <laughs> also, you know, just to, just, to re- just to reiterate, the company removing a paint program from a creator's update is, of course, Microsoft, because, pff, great. Also pissed me off. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. should have done it. You know what really... Uh, you know, you know, know what really grinds my gears? That's a, that's a horrible <laughs> yeah. Peter Griffin, but I can't. Um, yeah, no, that's really... Um, today's episode is about IoT, or the Internet of Things. And I actually was going to have... I was going to play the Blue's Clues music again, and I just I messed up. <laughs> it's okay. It's a joke that we've used too much. Right, Christian? You remember the... Uh, Melta. Melta. Internet of Things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Uh, it's because I haven't deleted it from my iPad that does all the jingles, so we can just keep using it every week and it doesn't get old. Actually, it's gotten quite old. Um, Internet of Things. Just to give a quick overview as I figure out where it is. There's a very brief history of Internet of Things that I want to give because it, it starts, and I needed to update my ad blocker because, Jesus Christ, the like, anyway. Uh... It's like, it's like having sex without a condom. You see the internet without an ad blocker. I've already said that before, but seriously. All right. <clears throat> in 1832, an electromagnetic tele... You know, I need the... Uh... No? How about the... Uh... In 1832, an electromagnetic telegraph was created by Baron Schilling in Russia. And in 1833, Carl Frederick Gauss and Wilhelm Weber invented their own code to communicate over a distance of 1,200 meters within Göttingen, Germany. In 1844, Samuel Morse sends the Force Morse Code 
with a telegraph message, What Hath God Wrought? From Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. In 26, Nikola Tesla, in an interview with Collier's Magazine, says, When wireless is perfectly applied, the whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles of a real and rhythmic whole, and the instruments through which we shall be able to do... (coughs) Oh, man, I was doing so well. We shall be able to do this with surprisingly ample compared to our present telephone. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket. In 1960, Alan Turing, in his article Computing Machinery and Intelligence in the Oxford Mind Journal, says, It can also be maintained that it is best to provide the machine with the best sense organs that money can buy, and then teach it to understand and speak English. This process could follow the normal teaching of a child. And then we fast forward through the whole internet and personal computer revolution to 1999, a big year for IoT and MIT, also a big year for Napster and uh, Mystery Mind. The Internet of Things is a term coined by Kevin Ashton, executive director of the Auto ID Center. Quote, I could be wrong, but I'm fairly sure the phrase Internet of Things started life as the title of a presentation I made at Procter & Gamble in 1999. Liking the new idea of RFID and P&G supply chains to the then red-hot topic of the Internet was more than just a good way to get executive attention. It summed up an important insight which is still often misunderstood. Other stuff happened in 1999. In 2002, the Ambient Orb, created by David Rose and others in a spinoff from the MIT Media Lab, is released into the wild. In 2004, the term is mentioned in mainstream publications like The Guardian, Scientific Atlantic, and Scientific American, and the Boston Globe. RFID is deployed on a massive scale. In 2005, IoT hit another level when the UN's International Telecommunications Union published its first report on the topic. And then other stuff's happened, and now we're here. It's gaining momentum. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, you know, we don't have to. We started from 1830. It's gaining momentum. Passover mom- stators were like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then Moses led the Jews into where did they go? And they, yeah, anyway, I think the first one turned into that because we got bored. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you know, no, I mean, you don't have to. It's if you want to be pedantic about it, you could always search for IoT history, but. There's, you know, there, there are the seeds that are planted in telecommunications, and then they slowly start to germinate, and then a plant blossoms, and then, and then people realize, wow, that's a nice plant, and then they start planting their own seeds, and then they turn into plants, and then you have a whole forest, and that's kind of where we're almost at. Well, it's crazy. Now you have Dixie Cups that'll do the drug test for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm I, serious. I that's not you even could a joke. Be serious. That's not even a joke. Like you pee in it, and it just tells you? Yeah. Wow. And then you're so drunk, you drink out of the cup. Aww. Uh, Just to be very pedantic, the Internet of Things refers to the networking of physical objects through the use of embedded sensors, actuators, and other devices that can collect or transmit information about the objects. The data amassed from these devices can then be analyzed to optimize product services and operations. Perhaps one of the earliest and best-known applications of such technology has been in the area of energy optimization. Sensors deployed across the electricity grid can help utilities remotely monitor energy energy use and adjust generation and and distribution flows to account for peak times and downtimes, or the refrigerator that will let you know when it's out of milk. I'm sorry, Lois, but this dinner is shallow and pedantic. (laughs) <laughs> exactly exactly um let's see uh there's some startling figures about about iot like where are they 
Uh, Internet of Things is set to reach a $1.4 trillion industry, trillion with a T, and, and spending by 2021 with 20 to 30 billion connected devices. The industry, IoT, is seeing 20% growth about annually. And there are four critical indicators of its progress. Uh, and they are, where are they? I don't know where they are. We got out of order. Oh, no. No, what happened? What happened? Uh, ah. Oh, here we go. No, it's not. It's gonna, we, we can always do the Golden Girls if it really got bad. No. It's uh, just the order that we have to the things today. Um, let's see. Ah, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. We're wasting so much time. So much time. I thought I opened this up, and I did not. I am so sorry. Uh, this was going to be really good. Oh, it was. I just read the wrong. I'm an idiot. Uh, okay. It was actually the same article I was reading. It was just further down. <laughs> okay. Um, there are four key indicators of the progress of IoT. Supplier attention. The Internet of Things developer tools and products are now available. Technological advances. Some of the semiconductor components that are central to most IoT applications are showing much more functionality at lower prices. Increasing demand. Demand for the first generation of IoT products like fitness bands, smartwatches, and smart thermostats will increase as component technologies evolve and their costs decline. A similar dynamic occurred with the rise of smartphone usage. Consumer demand for smartphones jumped from about 170 million devices sold annually to just, just four or five years ago to more than a billion devices in 2014. Uh, emerging standards. That pretty much explains itself. There are standards by giant companies, and these companies are starting to agree with each other. Sorry, standards emerging from giant companies. These giant companies are starting to agree with each other, and then they'll create real standards, which then we could all incorporate into devices for the future. And, Yay. yes, and all of those mean that IoT is very much boiling right now. So... Yes, and Ericsson, Sony Ericsson, predicts that 10% of all IoT devices will be connected through cellular networks. And that's 10% of a $1.4 trillion industry. So that's only $140 billion for cellular-based IoT stuff. Meh. Meh. It's not that much internet money. Yeah, no. It's not that much internet money, no. I mean, but it's still $140 billion. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. Meh. Uh, you. Verizon, Verizon will do its best to try to, uh, it. sorry? I'd pick it up off the ground if I saw it. I don't, I mean, it would be a lot, it would fill a swimming pool, Tyler. <laughs> or, sorry, it'd fill a kiddie pool, I guess. Not even. Uh, no? Thinking, what have you got in 50s? Well, okay, 50s, but I was thinking 100s. Well, of course, but that's not going to fill a swimming pool. No, no, it won't. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, there, are two main, there are two main drivers, uh, or computers, sorry, not computers, there are two main things that are driving, like I said, drivers, not like computer drivers, uh, the IoT revolution. A lot of small things, small devices are built on top of or including either an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi. Now, they are actually quite different, and I'll just well, run through that. Well, prototyped on those, and then they go to production on their own uh, uh, hardware? Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. So if you want to develop, this is perfect. A Raspberry Pi is a system on a chip that runs a full version of Linux and was designed with teaching in mind. The Arduino is just a microcontroller with a large community of support and hundreds of expansion chips or shields. The Arduino has a 16 megahertz 
processor. I haven't said the word megahertz in years. And falls a little short of the Raspberry Pi's 900 megahertz chip. Uh, the Raspberry Pi has all the trappings of a computer with a detailed processor, memory, graphics driver, output through HDMI, even runs a specially designed version of Linux. It makes it easy to install most Linux software unless you use a Pi as a functioning media streamer or video game emulator with a bit of effort. However, no internal storage. The Arduino is just a microcontroller. They don't run a full operating system, but they execute commands written that their firmware interprets. You lose access to the basic tools that an operating system provides, but on the other hand, directly executing simple code is easier, I'm sure faster, and is accomplished with no operating system overhead. The main purpose of the Arduino board is to interface with sensors and devices, so it's great for hardware projects in which you simply want things to respond to various sensor readings and manual input. The Pi has a built-in Ethernet port, but uh, you'd, have to, you'd have to install a USB adapter to get Wi-Fi. Uh, that's no longer uh, true. The Raspberry Pi. They have built-in Wi-Fi with Raspberry Pi? The newest one. Oh, fantastic. Yep. Fantastic. Uh, Arduino isn't built for network connectivity out of the box, but you could add a shield that does it. Uh, it requires a bit more tinkering to set up a proper connection, though it is possible. You need, you'll need an extra chip outfitted with an Ethernet port or Wi-Fi. Well, that also depends and, on which Arduino. Why? Do they have Arduino's stock that come with Ethernet? Yep. But it's just a... How does that work? There's no operating system. How does it... The, I guess you'd have to write the software there's, to transmit There's an Arduino that isn't like your usual Arduino. I forget what it's called. Oh, that would have been nice to know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, sensors. Arduino is more is easy to easier to develop and access sensors, if that's what you're doing. Uh, whereas a Raspberry Pi requires software to effectively interface with these sensors, uh, which you isn't always what you need if you want a smaller project. So... If you want your plants to tell you when they're out of water, do you use a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino? Use Raspberry Pi so it can uh, easily put out like a, uh, uh, what's his name, um, yeah, like an Andy Dick voice to complain. Ah, there you go. Does Linux have built-in text-to-speech? Yes. Oh. Good, then you can, you can do that. <laughs> okay, what would be a good example for an Arduino, Christian? Uh... Something that, uh, well, really, you can use either or for many different things. Uh, it's usually more of a development preference, but if you want something lighter weight, then you go with the Arduino. Like you could. I mean, also remember, the Arduino is 16 megahertz. The Raspberry Pi is 900. Yeah. If you need something to process data, you'd want. Well, if you need a full computer Pi. or something that's actually cheaper than the Arduino in some cases, then you go with Raspberry Pi. But you go with an Arduino usually because you like to develop on Arduino these days. But uh, is that just a fad? Yeah, well, the Arduino was like the older one, so it was around more. Some people are used to it, so they go with Arduino. Other people just use Raspberry Pis because they're so cheap, and you can just pop them anywhere. And they, they also support uh, hardware-level stuff with GPIO. The one thing is uh, understanding the Linux GPIO suite is a little more advanced than just the Arduino. Here's the SDK. Go do stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, let's move on to... Uh... IoT connectivity. All of this stuff has to use a network to be able to talk to you and for you to talk to it. And most IoT stuff uses a personal area network, or PAN. There are other types of networks that are being developed, like uh, low-power WANs, as in a low-power kind of mesh network that kind of, I guess, works on cellular. And they can do ad hoc connections, so one bit of the mesh can forward your request to another bit of the mesh, and then you could have this kind of little network of very small computers and beacons uh, that would let you do well, 
what you want. Forwarding's not really how uh, uh, any of these uh, area and mesh networks work. Well, that's okay. It's when I mean more so, how does it how does it hand off your request to the next node? Well, at the uh, IP layer, it's uh, a broadcast uh, until it finds the correct IP address, which you can either specify. uh, If you're doing, it depends on how you're controlling it. If you're controlling it at the IP layer, then it's going to broadcast and and then find the IP address at once. Unless using something like BGP, which tells it which path to go, so you know I go to this place, to this place, to this place. Uh, But otherwise, what you can do is something like uh, you specifically say, I just want to broadcast so everything gets it, so that way the broadcast just works. If uh, if it's a mesh network, a decentralized mesh network, is there really a router, like a centralized router, or would everything just kind of broadcast everything? It's everything's connected uh, to everything, but at some point there's an access point to the outside world, which would be the router. Okay, at some point. So, but the but the network uh, could operate autonomously on its own without a router it just if, forwards all the if it if it broadcasts if on all a the pan, requests. uh device a is uh, the same type as device b or they're all the same thing they can all talk to each other it's usually that they talk to a localized router which talks to another router which talks to another router which talks to the other devices which is much like the internet itself once you get outside of a data center or your uh home right right okay um, one application of this are those Bluetooth beacons that, like, when you... Uh, I, I saw a really good example recently where there was a, a shoe company that put Bluetooth or Bluetooth low-energy beacons outside of their competitor's shops in a mall. And whenever somebody... Whenever they could identify a, a potential customer, it would say, Hey, our shoes are $100 off, but the discount decreases every second that you wait. And it just shows the, the, the discount decreasing. And that's a great way to steal customers from a store. Is that legal? I don't know. But it does, I mean, it does actually work. Um, Bluetooth low energy is basically, I mean, it's basically that. It's just a low energy version of Bluetooth. It's more passive, I guess, because it's lower energy, it has a lower throughput. But you don't really need high throughput for this type of stuff. Is that correct, Christian? Well, depending on what you're doing. Okay. Well, I mean, these beacons are very... You know, they send very small request payloads. Hey, someone's here. Yeah, okay, then, yeah. Uh, and, and Bluetooth Low Energy was actually developed in 2001 by Nokia. And it was introduced in 2004, but we haven't really heard about it until a couple of years ago. Well, most Bluetooth is actually Bluetooth Low Energy. Oh, well, then why, does the, why, is it, why is there this branding name for Low Energy? There's Bluetooth low energy. There's Bluetooth smart. Well, Bluetooth itself is not low energy, but the Bluetooth that you, most devices use is low energy. Otherwise, we'd be radiating all of our uh, reproductive organs. Okay. Well, low energy is probably relative to the energy that Bluetooth regular emits. Right? No. You're, no. What Bluetooth regular is, no device actually uses in a end-user situation. There is uh, Bluetooth regular, but it's usually used in labs and such. The Bluetooth that is in our phones and uh, our smartwatches, etc., that is actually Bluetooth Low Energy. Oh. Okay. Well, that's why you're on the show. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to show is a um, basically the opposite of Bluetooth Low Energy. Uh, and by the way, with these Low Energy Beacons, you can, or, or Bluetooth Low Energy Beacons, you can create a Bluetooth Mesh Network. Bluetooth Mesh Networking is very new, and I think it... Like, the software for it has just been, or the standard for it has just been ratified. The standard is what's new. People have been doing it for yeah. a while. Uh, right. So the standard, like we said earlier, 
with one of the key indicators of IoT prevalence is standards, and this is one of those. Which um, does remind me, IPv6 just last week was standardized, finally. Oh, I can't... I, that's what it was. I knew I was forgetting something. All of this stuff kind of needs IPv6, because we're moving into a world where each where the number of devices connected to the internet is huge. Huge. Granted... NAT may still prevent the IP crisis from happening, or I think it is currently preventing the IP crisis from happening, where we run out of IP4 addresses. But I would assume that if you really want to get to a cellular-connected Internet of Things, you'd probably need everything to have an IP. I don't know. You can still get NAT on the cell phone level. I don't know. Is IPv6 actually necessary for IoT, Christian? It certainly helps. It certainly helps, but is it necessary? Uh, you can find ways around everything. Okay. And that's what technology is all about. Basically. <laughs> Finding ways around stuff. Basically, yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about that's the opposite of Bluetooth low energy, as I've been doing research in IoT, is this thing called the Bode RS BD004. It is a bandwidth on demand. It's a box that has a bunch of every type of internet connection that you could think of. It has an input for satellite, it has an input for cable, it has four SIM slots that does bonded LTE. Bonded LTE means that it does what, Christian? Gets giggities. Um, that's right. That means two things. It, it combines the connections into one big connection and allows you to multiplex the bandwidth from each of those connections. That's distinct from load balancing. Yes. And how is that distinct from load balancing? This is actually uh, bonding the connections together into one connection as opposed to taking a, a single uh, request and uh, spreading it amongst multiple connections. So even in load balancing, one whole request still goes through one pipe? And no, not necessarily. It depends on your setup. Okay. Well, then, I mean, could load balancing be the same as bonding or no? No. Because? Because bonding is at a much lower level. Ah, gotcha. And this, does, and this doesn't just bond the four LTE SIM cards. Uh, it also can bond, like I said, satellite cable. It has just a WAN port if you want to plug in inter a WAN internet from somewhere else. And outputs uh, four... That's, all, that's it? Four Ethernet ports. I don't even know if they're gigabit. I would hope so. It says, combine up to four USB modems, three Ethernet modems, and add broadband landline connections for blazing vast internet connectivity, not to mention the four SIM card slots. Better have gigabit out. Ah, I can't talk. Better have gigabit out. So, but here's a question, Christian. If all of the connections are bonded together, and you hit a server... How does it know on the other side that you're all all of these connections are coming from the same place? Is it rely on like a, a secret token? That well, they each have their checksum, which uh, comes from uh, the source uh, address and the destination, and a bunch of other things that get mixed together to perform this checksum. But depending on the protocol itself is the big part. Let's say I'm doing something like watching Netflix, and I start playing a movie, and I log on to Netflix, and it uses uh, the cable. And then I start playing the movie, and it uses the cell modem. I should have said that backwards, because that would have been bad for your data usage. How does Netflix know that both requests are coming from the same actual person, despite having completely different origins and IP addresses and, and routes and everything? Well, because of the bonding connections, I don't think that would be the case. But also... But how does Netflix know? It's a remote host. Your, your connection is still ultimately going out through one of those channels. It bonds them in the box. How does Netflix know? 
half the request is coming from one connection, half the request is coming from another connection. Because I mentioned they're being bonded at the box, so those connections are separate at, uh, on the other side, but the outgoing would be the same thing. And it would also, uh, I assume the box would have some sort of way to do like such a thing as uh, the higher level concept of sticky sessions where a connection was made for this address and then it goes to that, which is the TCP side. Uh, I actually don't know if Netflix uses UDP streaming or not, but I, I would imagine so. Uh, so that, that that's actually being sent, and that can be a much more free saying, this is just the destination, it needs to reach it, I send it, this thing until I get a confirmation back, uh, that which is implemented in user land instead of kernel, something like that. But, it's, but my, uh, that makes sense. But my big question is, is about this. The, the, my big question, though, is about the security. Because if Netflix, if you log in on one on one style of connection, if I log in on the cell phone and I want and then I want, or the cell modem, and then I want the the the, inter, or the video to come out over the WAN or over the cable, how does it know that I'm the same? That I'm authenticated? How does it know that? I, how can I pass all the DRM and all the, the security box checks? Is the thing that's keeping all those connections uh, uh, looking at as one? Okay. So the box is managing all of that. So mm-hmm. the box will 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 pretend. I guess it, all it is is just session maintenance. But what if you bound a session not, to an IP it's address? It's not session right? maintenance. It's the connections. That it's, it's happening at a much lower level. The, bo- the box is doing all this. Is this multipath TCP? No, multipath TCP is different. Multipath path, path TCP is the idea of on the outgoing connection for each hop. Instead of it being always like once the connection is made in a traditional TCP, it is just using that same path the entire time. So it's going from router A to router B to router C to destination. Uh, but multipath says I can, on the on the connect, do A to B to C to the destination, but then on the... So that's this, uh, so on the SYN and the act, SYN act back, then that's uh, on that path. Or on the SYN act back, the SYN act back, back could actually use a different path which would be like it could use router D to B to A uh, to send that back, and then passing the frames could happen on any path at once. Gotcha. That sounds like what this is. No. Okay. How is it not? The box is is different. It is dealing with a bunch of connections in a local environment that then goes to the outside world as a single one. But unlike a router that is doing natting, it is using a separate subnets. Does multipath TCP have to be supported the whole way through your connection in order for it to actually work? Or is it something that you can handle like the box, like your local internet connection would be multipath, between, something like that? Between the source and the destination, it could be. It just looks like an IP packet to the routers. So the, it's Which matter- one, multipath or...? Multipath. Okay. So it's a matter of it needs to know the forward that IP uh, packet to uh, the destination somehow. And then it's a matter of instead of the uh, regular TCP things uh, saying these uh, IP packets go in this path, it now can say it can take any of these one paths as long as it matches the checksum and the source and the destination match. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and, and the multipath TCP relies on a subflow system used to gather multiple standard TCP connections. Subflows are identified during the TCP handshake, after which an application can add or remove some subflows. Interesting. Uh, there is the software-defined WAN, W-A-N, which uh, simplifies the management and operation of a WAN by decoupling the networking hardware from its control mechanism. So, is that what this box is? No. 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 
Would that allow I, you to, co- to combine, like... So, I will say, I find it interesting that you came across this with IoT, because this is something that data centers do a lot, like, uh, well, as you say, companies do a lot to connect data centers. Like, okay, but with IoT, couldn't you combine, like, a Verizon cell modem and your local internet connection to be in a software-defined network so all of, this, all of the traffic looks like it's one yes, uh, piece? Yes, but the software-defined network is a different piece to this. This is, uh, it would be the thing that combines those two. Sorry? The software-defined network is the thing combining the two, then. Like, say I'm running... Say I'm using Flannel, a very common software, uh, SDN, and I somehow managed to cram Flannel onto my cell phone, and that is not connected to my Wi-Fi, but then on my laptop, I'm also using Flannel, and through some uh, amazing subnetting work that I would not want to deal with ever in my life, I was able to connect the two of them through the Flannel uh, network, then all of a sudden it's doing this UDP encapsulation to say these IP packets get wrapped in a UDP packet and get sent between each other looking like it's in the network. What's the overhead on that? It's an SDN. It's just whatever it is. In fact, there's an SDN that a uh, colleague of mine uh, created called uh, Quantum that actually encrypts all the packets and for some reason it's actually faster with the encryption than without it. Huh. That's surprising. Yep. Um... The required characteristic for, S- for SD-WAN of the ability to support multiple connection types, such as MPLS, the multi-protocol label switching, which we'll talk about shortly, uh, the ability to do dynamic path selection for load sharing and resiliency purposes, a simple interface that is easy to configure and manage, and the ability to support VPNs. Uh, multi-protocol label switching is what, Christian? Uh, that is... Uh, the ability to say within a switch so this is a uh, much lower level hardware thing to actually say uh, you don't necessarily need IP, uh, 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 to do ethernet you don't need IP you could do really anything this is happening on a physical layer and it's not just this one type of protocol it can do many things Gotcha, gotcha. That, that does sound lower level. MPLS directs data from one network node to the next based on short path labels rather than long network addresses. So, sounds like NetBIOS names. According complex lookups in a routing table. The, la- the labels identify virtual links or paths between, short di- uh, between distant nodes rather than endpoints. MPLS can encapsulate packets of various network protocols, hence its name multi-protocol. MPLS supports a range of access technologies such as T1E1, ATM, Frame Relay, and DSL. Very good. Uh, much like software-defined WAN, except it's completely different. There's a low-power WAN, LP. Just like, why isn't it WAN LE? WAN low energy, like Bluetooth LE. Ugh, consistency. Um, low-power WAN is a type of wireless communication wide-area network to de- designed to allow long-range communications at a low bit rate among things, like the Internet of Things. So, like we mentioned, these little devices that you can build with, you know, Raspberry Pis or Arduinos or whatever, or create your own device, can operate on a low-power wide-area network and communicate with other things, I would, other nodes, things, uh, in a short radius, I would guess it ha- would have to be short because it's low power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uses a uh, a thing called CSS. We're friends of that. N- not that one. I know. It's a mm-hmm. chirp spread spectrum. Uh, the radio modulation technology for LPWAN. I don't really know what that is, but it's a radio thing. And radio stuff makes the whole internet possible. 
Uh, Canonical, the company that owns Ubuntu or that uh, publishes Ubuntu, argues monetization for the Internet of Things is a bigger challenge than security is for professionals. According to a new study, Canonical said that more than half, as in 53% of industry professionals, that is us, I wasn't asked, but whatever, <laughs> say that quantifying return, and they, you know, is this another one of those where they ask like 50 people and they pretend it's a real study? I don't know anyone that got asked. Anyone around my office agrees with me. We're all engineers. <laughs> that's like 20 people, right? That's not a sample size or something. 20 people, that's like 3 million people. Yeah, you just extrapolate. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, according to a new study from Canonical, uh, more than half, 53% of industry professionals like us, say that quantifying return on investment, or ROI, was their biggest immediate challenge. I guess it's a, it's a pretty standard business complaint. Before they invest in anything, they want to know their ROI. This yeah, was followed... ad space everywhere. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that's what IoT basically is. It's going to turn into the Minority Report stuff, where you walk by a store and Hello, Eric, how's it going? Oh, it's... <laughs> creepy. I don't need women's shoes. Air Jordan but. 45s are on sale right now. Yeah, exactly. Given your Amazon shopping history, you'd like this butt plug. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, you know, could happen. Given your I shopping history, you'd like all of these butt plugs. <laughs> yes. That's, uh, yeah. Actually, in a, speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of butt plugs. <laughs> okay, go on. Uh, I was watching a show from the 2000s. Uh, it was with Penn and Teller called Bullshit. It was on Showtime. It's a great oh. show. I didn't realize how, how long it ran. It eight seasons, but I was watching stuff from the first episode, and they talked about people that were abducted by aliens and how that's bullshit. And they took, I'm not kidding, they took, like, like anal beads or, like, a butt plug or something, and they sprayed it metallic uh, silver, and they showed it to people that were abducted by aliens. And they were like, and they go, oh, that's the probe that they used when they probed me. <laughs> I thought it would be funnier. Audience, can't you help me out? <laughs> Only one force. Anyway. Uh, more than a third of respondents, comprising developers, vendors, and enterprise users, also us, added that quantifying the business benefits of IoT should be the same primary goal, should be the primary goal to encourage greater adoption. A 24% or quarter, 20, well, it's 24%, it's not a quarter argued that improving the understanding of the technology's benefits was key, while 17% opted for improved security. Given monetizing IoT was seen as the biggest issue, the report delved into various routes for achieving ROI. Almost 4 in 5, 78%, uh, it's common for math, said that they, were, uh, they would expect to make money through value-added services, with hardware rentals, 57%, uh, one-off hardware fees, 55%, and uh, ongoing software and security fees, 55%, uh, and consultancy and deployment, 54%. That is way more than 100%. That sounds like a bunch of assholes trying to run this like a cable company. Are they... I, did they allow people to make multiple answers that box, kind of corrupts the study? And then we charge you a monthly fee, and we're going to charge you a monthly security fee, and then... Oh. You're right. That's, that's the only way that you can have 57 and 55 and 55 and 54. Yeah. It's over 200%. I bought a product. Let me use it. Stop charging me. You're not buying it. You're renting it from us. That's the 57%. There's the one-off rental fee. That's the 55%. And then the ongoing maintenance, because it's still our device, we have to upkeep it and update the software electronically, which is automated, but that's still another 55%. Yeah. Great. It's like, Great. It's like buying an apartment. Don't get IoT stuff from Comcast. Though, don't AT&T. Don't from Comcast because you can help it. Just don't. Yeah, well, almost as bad or if perhaps worse. you like the internet, then you don't like Comcast. Yes, well, almost as bad as Comcast or perhaps worse in some areas. AT&T. 
uh, my cell phone company, unfortunately, they have an IoT starter kit for $99 that actually includes a cell modem. A cell modem? Yeah, a cellular modem. So it can talk to AT&T as the uh, network connection built in. They sell an IoT starter kit for 99 bucks. It's not. It actually looks pretty interesting, and you can get like a data-only plan for 10 or so bucks that's throttled. Uh, I know T-Mobile th- or is throttling their uh, Internet of Things plans down to 64 kilobits a second. So what we talked about previously, or just now, about uh, like low-power WANs or, or, or uh, things that use minimal data, they have to use minimal data because everything is being throttled. So, yeah. yeah. And that's before the uh, FCC shuts down. Internet neutrality. Right, that's that's right now. But remember, and this is, I have a hard time with net neutrality because I understand it from both angles, much like I understand taxes from both angles, where I have to pay the IRS, pneumonium, turn 10. I have to pay the IRS, I understand. I want to have the lowest payment possible. I also understand that if more rich people paid their share, we wouldn't have as many potholes on the interstates. So, I'm ambivalent. If I had billions of dollars, I wouldn't want to give up 40% of my income, and you know, back then it actually was much more higher percentage than that. Well, so. Maybe you would. Maybe you'd be like Warren Buffett who says billionaires need no, to pay more taxes. No, He's only saying that because he's close to death. <laughs> Ask him when he's 30 what he said. I mean, anyway. Since what happens when Bill Gates dies, he's only living 10 million to his kids. That's cool. I, I hope his kids aren't jerk-offs, but anyway. Let's they talk about a way. They can't be $10 million jerk-offs. They can't be $10 billion jerk-offs, and that's what's important. Uh, that's true. You can't be Charlie. Well, maybe they can take a a small ten million dollar loan and turn it into a billion dollar multiple multiply bankrupt operation like our president. Uh, And he did that with a one million dollar loan from his father. Sorry, but they come from a successful family. Unfortunately, you don't get your name on the Upper West Side for nothing. Although you inherited it from your dad, you turned five hundred five million dollars into five hundred ten million dollars. That's, that's all a, those buildings were in his dad. That's what the president did. No, his dad only had buildings in Queens. Don, Donnie has the ones in the city. Anyway, I just I'm not a, I'm I've got too political. I don't want, I'm not saying I'm a Trump supporter. No, we're ripping out bad business people. This has I know to do I'm not saying I'm a Trump supporter, but you have to acknowledge the fact that you can't have your name on a bunch of effing buildings on the Upper West Side without you know without a lot of effort. It, you, you no idiot can do that. I'm sorry. So. Could I, I called myself an idiot. Can I do it? I only I don't, I don't even own the building where I live. It just Who knows? depends on how much an idiot inherits to start with. That's yes. I mean, yes. That's that's the whole privilege argument. That's definitely another podcast. Let's talk about getting back into things. Let's talk about an application of IoT, uh, like smart meters. Uh, we're transitioning away from meters to where someone has to go out to your location to read your usage, uh, into a world of. Meters that have these little mini computers with cellular modems that can just transmit their data back to home base just like that. The problem, though, is that many of these meters have accuracy issues. I heard once of a woman in Atlanta receiving a $5,000 water bill when it used to be 5 bucks or 10 bucks because of the smart meters. And the city of Atlanta said, oh, you should have monitored your usage. <laughs> so be very wary of the forthcoming IoT world, but here it is. Water Group, a leading smart water, not the drink, provider in Australia, signed a five-year agreement with Thinkstra, 
Water Group will make Thinkstra's SigFox Low Power Wide Area Network, or Christian, LPWAN, to boost the capabilities of IoT w- smart water meter connections. Water Group, after having spent 24 months researching and developing multiple LPWANs, uh, or LPWAN wireless technologies, found the SigFox technology most suitable to fit its needs. We don't care. Thinkstra is expecting, is, is expecting the SigFox network to cover 95% of the Australian population by the end of 2017, from its current cover of 71%. And that's it. It's just smart water meters and, and the systems that allow them to communicate with each other. Nice. And I would guess that inside one of these is a little a system on a chip. Uh, or maybe it's an Arduino, a, a miniature version of a microcontroller that just takes the sensor data and outputs it over a cell modem. And I don't necessarily know how you could do all of that without an operating system that has drivers for the modems and stuff, but that's how it works for some reason. Well, I mean, you could just get a, you know, you get one of those things and you put the operating system on a USB stick. No, no, no the, the Arduino isn't a computer, it's just a controller. But... No, but the Raspberry Pi is one of those. No, I know, but I'm saying, I don't think, I don't know, I don't know what this, this smart meter has, but it does have like a whole screen. It might actually just be a, it might be a whole mini computer. Um... I don't know. Uh, let's see. Uh, open that one already. Um, is that it? Is that really? I think it is. So we've got one last story. I think that's everything we've got for IoT. Yep. We've got one last story for tonight. And that's a nice nightcap for the end. <laughs> Why you shouldn't shout in the data center. Data centers are noisy places. Sometimes you have to raise your voice to be heard, but you shouldn't shout right next to a rack of equipment, as illustrated by Brendan Gregg of Sun Microsystems. Brendan used analytic software developed by Sun's Fishworks team to demonstrate that shouting next to working racks can cause significant disk latency. Even though it's the needle and and the platters are deep inside a thick metal box, your voice, everything is so thin that the sound waves and the sound pressure coming out of your mouth can actually affect the drives. It's crazy. That's wild. In this example, Brendan screams into a rack housing JBODs, just a bunch of disks, producing an immediate pop in I.O. latency. The increase is caused by disk vibration resulting from the nearby noise. While the example is extreme, it's worth considering the next time you are trying to make yourself heard in the data center. So uh, if your data center or your data servers are being too slow, don't yell at them. Is that his voice or is he doing an impression? Uh, he sounds like he sounds like he's, he's doing a mass hole impression. That white noise is all of the discs in the data center. You know, it kind of sounds like uh, Cliff Clavin over there. You know, when I was uh, when I was working for the U.S. Postal Service, uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's uh, don't, don't shout in the data center. Don't talk about Crocodile Dundee that way. Who? Crocodile Dundee. Oh, I thought you said Al Bundy from like uh, Married with Children. Mm-hmm. It's another guy, kind of, with that voice. Well, we've had such a fun episode talking about the Internet of Things all this time. It's I guess we have to put it away. So, Christian, do you approve of this week's pull request? Looks good to me. Tyler? I do. Well, then let's all hit merge.
And we'll see you all next week right here on Bubble Request. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Bubble Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Wolfpack. Visit them at V-U-L-F-P-E-C-K dot com. <laughs>